Hello and welcome aboard this island nation, the Maritime Programme. Tom Sweeney here with the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, the Chief of Staff of the Defence Forces highlights an aspect of the marine sphere at which Ireland is not good. We're not great in terms of recognising our maritime heroes. And this is an extraordinary story that I didn't really know the detail of. The interesting point about the story is when uh, Edward was in Valparaiso, over the Andes in Argentina, Admiral William Brown was actually free in the Argentine state as head of the Argentine Navy. And the Irish Iceman goes swimming in the Antarctic, the coldest waters on Earth. This is a seven-year journey for me, Paula, swimming to Antarctica. This is my final leg of my journey. I've swum around the world. This is supposed to be my seventh continent now. For Antarctica, the expected water is about minus one Celsius. This island nation is Ireland's maritime radio programme, coming to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yol on the East Cork coastline, and bringing together the maritime community around Ireland, an island people, a community bonded by the sea around us. And you're very welcome to contact the programme. Email thisislandnation at gmail.com. That's thisislandnation at gmail.com. And phone 0872-555-197. That's 0872 At last, Edward Bransfield has been publicly recognised. The Irish seafarer and navigator who first set eyes on Antarctica 200 years ago this week. We've been following the efforts by his native village of Balanacurra in East Cork on the edge of Cork Harbour to achieve that over the past few years. In the presence of a very big attendance, a memorial erected to him was unveiled and the Irish Naval Service recognised his achievement with the presence of Vice Admiral Mark Mellet, Chief of Staff of the Defence Forces, who gave the oration. As you know well, we're not great in terms of, of recognising our maritime heroes. And this is an extraordinary story that I didn't really know the detail of. The interesting point about the story is when uh, Edward was in Valparaiso, over the Andes in Argentina, Admiral William Brown was actually really free in the Argentine state as head of the, the uh, Argentine Navy. So it's extraordinary that you know, Brown was born, I think, about five, eight years before Edward Bransfield, and he died about five years after Edward Brown Bransfield. And their careers, and both of them were pressed into the Royal Navy. They wouldn't be in the Navy only for the fact that the Royal Navy pressed them at the time. That's how they used to get their crews. And as you say, it's a great part of history that even yourself didn't know about. Absolutely. Like I knew about William Brown to an extent, but I didn't know about this great leader here in terms of Edward Bransfield and all he did. And like it was certainly a story of iron men and wooden ships. When you consider his ship, that the Williams, was uh, 216 tonnes, a twelfth of the size of one of our own ships. And even in the weather we go out at the moment, we fare with our own ships because it can be quite challenging. And yet he was down plotting the uh, Antarctic on a, on a small wooden ship. Extraordinary achievement. Great to be proud of a local man then. I'm very proud, very proud. And I mean, I think there is a more work to be done now in peer review of mm. the actual documentation with regards to Bransfield. Like the, uh, the log from the midshipman Charles Pointer clearly states the description of the land that he identified, which was uh, high mountains uh, with uh, rugged, uh, jagged crags, and it was all about land. Whereas uh, Bellinghausen didn't mention land, he mentioned ice sheets. 
So there is, a, I think, a question there to be answered on this whole controversy as to who discovered the Antarctic first. And the accuracy is reflected in the, the recording, the contemporaneous recording on the 30th of January in 1820 by actual Bransfield that he saw land. That's not in the log from what I can see in terms of the Bellin-Housen piece. Vice Admiral Mark Mellet, Chief of Staff of the Irish Defence Forces. And the Chairman of the Memorial Committee, Jim Wilson, was astonished that so many people turned up from many parts of the country to honour Edward Bransfield. Just beyond, beyond our, our, our wildest dreams, the number of people that have turned out. And you have the Naval Service here officially? Absolutely, yes. We've got, we've got uh, Vice Admiral Mellet. Uh, he's the Chief of Staff of all the Defence Forces. And then we've got Commodore uh, Mike Malone who's the head of the Naval Service. So it's a great honour and it actually shows how important this man is in Irish history. That, that people like these, people from the, the, the Defence Forces, recognise and want to come and pay tribute to Edward Bransfield. It was a great occasion, a huge gathering of maritime people at which we ate penguins in Creedon's family pub, an iconic maritime centre known around Ireland for the great Bookland schooner. The penguins, I should say, were delicious, but they were confectionery. Cakes crafted by Evie Shinnick, daughter of Eugene Furlong, one of the leading members of the Bransfield Commemoration Committee. The weather was cold for the ceremony, but not as cold in the East Cork village as in the fifth largest continent on Earth, which covers the South Pole and is sheeted in ice. It is to those waters in Antarctica that Jerry Kennedy, the world-renowned ice swimmer from Dublin, is heading to honour Bransfield, as he told me at the commemoration ceremony. Yeah, we're leaving for Antarctica uh, on the 12th of February, and some part of the celebrations here of the memorial of Ever Bransfield, and uh, Eugene Furlan's brought me up to date three years ago when we didn't know much about it. So it just turned out to be the anniversary, uh, two-year anniversary of it, and our timing was perfect. So I said, okay, there's 18 of us going, and for me, and hopefully we can get the group as a unit of about, there's about 14 Irish, and we'll have a swim in, in memory for Ever Bransfield down there. Most people didn't know, including myself, about Bransfield, and we were all told the story. It's amazing to be doing that, but it, it's not the first, shall we say, icy waters you've been in. No, no, I've swum around the world. Um, this is this be my seventh continent now, where I do an endurance swimmer, so I swim long distance. So for, for Antarctica, the expected water is about minus one Celsius, and I swim about a mile distance. Uh, on normal togs and speedos, so uh, it's 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 unusual, but it's 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 a seven-year journey for me for swimming. So I call it swimming to Antarctica. And this is my final leg of my journey. You know. No wetsuits, no dry suits. <laughs> no dress suits, no dry suits. Uh, cap, 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 togs and goggles, and that's it. Earplugs. And if it's the last year, why? What, what's the motivation? Um, I suppose you know, the way I, you know, I'm, I'm 50 now, so my age and stuff when I started to reachieve when I was about 44 I started to realise I actually were quite good at this and I could be able to take a lot of cold water intolerance and then into icy water tolerance uh, I started to uh, push forward and started to do stuff that no other man could do and um, now consequently now I've come uh, number one in what I do because of the endurance levels I can go to or have been to and um, that's been documented through, uh, we have a document process with Ice Swimming Association where we verify our swims, properly observed, timed, 
admin correctly. And uh, so it's probably to these new levels where here I am with these beautiful people here remembering this, this great man at Cork. And now it's taking me to Antarctica and this is my last continent to swim in. When you step into minus one, you would say, <laughs> yeah. I, I just can't figure out what, the, what yeah. it must be like. Um, it's it's yeah it's pretty extreme. Uh, the how do I say the it's very painful, uh, extremely painful, especially your your toes and your your outer limbs. You know, especially your fingers and your toes. The immediate pain, so the the pain and then obviously the cold water shock, icy water shock, is a gasping effect you have to control. So it takes years for us to control those kind of get reflexes of the body to say get out where we have to absorb them and be able to actually bring my heart rate down, which is usually about 60 beats per minute when I'm actually swimming. I'm very, very relaxed, very in control, relaxed, and I'm just looking for the finish and getting out, basically, you know. I could imagine many things, but I'd never realised pain was part of it. I could imagine the shock, the Mm. cold, the feeling, but pain is something I would Uh, never associate it with it. Yeah, yeah, the, the fingers especially. Fingers it is. Face, chest, I mean, you know, your feet, you can get over that. It's your fingers. Your fingers would start to swell, usually about, I wouldn't say twice the size, but pretty swollen. And they turn a white colour because they, they're, they're the nearest or the most further from your heart, which the, hot, the warm blood starts to retract back into your vital organs. So these are on the verge of actually frostbite, you know. So you're on that fine line of actually, you know, I've done a lot of swims where thankfully I've no, I've no long-lasting damage. I've been very lucky, but if you do overdo what I do, you, you will risk, you will risk uh, uh, you know, ill health or, you know. But we are medically approved and cardiology approved. They don't approve us, but we are of sound cardiology, of health. We get medicals twice a year. Um, we get stress ECGs, you know, where they were very, very fit, but they still can't understand how we can do it. Medically, they just go, we don't know how you can do that. We just don't know, because the thermometers don't go down that low. We're about 29 Celsius when we come out of water and dropping. And how does the body, the process of bringing us back up, there's a, there's a recovery, deep recovery process of that some of my skilled friends can do. Medically friends, but not every medic can do because it's so extreme to see a body that's actually kind of locked and stuff arms and legs are you know held inside and it's you're at that border of non-recovery well <laughs> amazingly determined to hear you good luck on the swim and we'll talk to you when you've completed it appreciate that thank you very much yeah Joe yeah. <laughs> Kennedy ice swimmer an extraordinary undertaking with which we wish him well also at the ceremony was Rory Golden from Sandy Cove in County Dublin. He's the first Irish diver to have gone down to the wreck of the Titanic and he's also led international dives on the wreck of the Lusitania off Kinsale. A member of the Explorers Club of Great Britain, he's very pleased at having persuaded its members to add Ireland to its name, which he displayed at the ceremony on the club's new flag. Another achievement by an Irish mariner.
Next to our offshore islands for the monthly report from Kogol Ilona Heron, the Islands Federation. Barrow de Twombly joining us from Inijlar Island in Clube, County Mayo. For the first time in years, the Kogol AGM will be held in Donegal on Ironmore Island. We're really looking forward to the event, scheduled for the weekend of the 3rd through the 5th of April. The theme of the meeting will be connectivity and the sustainability of islands. As Aaron Moore is deeply involved with the work of broadband provider 3 in designing a package of cyber solutions for a range of island challenges, it is of great interest to explore the possibilities created by high-grade internet provision. And, as the AGM is over a weekend, Islanders from along the coast will have a better chance of travelling up to Arnor for what is traditionally a great opportunity for old friends to catch up, mixed in with some island business, music, dancing and in general good crack. With the general election just around the corner, Kogolilanairn has asked candidates of all parties from constituencies that contain islands as well as relevant politicians running for re-election to sign up to the Pledge of Support for Ireland's Offshore Islands. Kogol is asking candidates for their support and that of their party in creating and or supporting government policies that encourage and strengthen sustainability of our islands. Some of the areas being stressed in the pledge are the creation of offshore islands policies, lobbying for positive incentives for companies and individuals creating jobs and sustainable employment, including prioritizing and promoting remote work. The pledge also seeks support for improvement of transport systems and infrastructure, the creation of a bespoke education and school system suitable to the needs of islanders, strengthening of the special recognition and the common fisheries policy for small offshore islands, as well as the recognition of the challenges of offshore island farmers. Other aspects listed as vital to offshore island sustainability are health care, child and elder care, housing and reduction of the cost of living on islands, estimated as a third higher than living on the mainland. There's been a show of support for the pledge already with several candidates signing up to the document. Time will tell if this will lead to a constructive path forwards for our offshore islands. Finally, the Islands Office of the Department of Culture, Heritage and Gaeltacht is in the middle of their public consultation process. Officials from Minister Kynes Department have travelled to some of our islands to consult with islanders on how residents see the future of their islands and express their ideas on the way forward. The sea conditions have not always cooperated and some visits have had to be cancelled, but we're assured that new dates will be set for those cancelled so that all offshore islands will have their say. There have been mixed reviews on the consultations held. While important issues were raised, the overriding fear is that action won't be taken on recommendations. It is hoped, however, that this is a positive start taken along with the Interdepartmental Committee on Islands will form a plan of action for our offshore islands. So for now, it's lawn from the islands. Rosa Twombly and now Justin Marr has a roundup of maritime news. First, the fishing industry. 
where there's a lot of concern about the impact of Brexit following the publication of the UK government's fisheries bill, which intends to exclude all non-British boats from UK waters. An agreement will have to be negotiated to allow Irish boats to continue to fish there, and that will have to be done through the EU. If there's no agreement, there could be a big increase in the number of EU boats fishing in Irish waters, with a big impact on stocks. Irish fishermen are angry that, in Irish waters, the EU gives French, Spanish and other European countries rights to catch far more fish than Irish fishermen are allowed to do. John Nolan, who has been 37 years in the fishing industry and is managing director of Castletown Bear Fishermen's Co-op, has spoken out strongly about this. Blamed Irish government ministers and civil servants in an interview in this month's Marine Times newspaper. He outlined his views. We have over 62 boats. Over the last three years, our small boats, boats under 20 metres, have really struggled. The West Coast for a boat that size is not the best place to be. And I had just a story with one of our smaller boats. He has five children and he said if he was unemployed and claiming the dole and all the money that goes with it, he'd have 750 euros a week. And yet in fishing for the last year, he averaged 300 euros a week. And he said, I don't think I'll be here next year in relation to fishing. Like, What frustrates you at times like, is that the farmers are organised and they get loads of compensation from Europe. We get nothing. He also said that Irish fishermen were wronged by the EU and that should be rectified. We got wronged in Europe as a country in fishing and nobody within Ireland expresses that anger that it's like, ah, should they're only fishermen, they don't worry about that. We, on a national level, are unimportant. And yet, if we had negotiated a correct deal first day, the potential of what we could have developed in the industry I think that drive me around a bit now like that. In all waters, something like Monk, we get 5% of the quarter. And yet the French get 50% of the quarter in all waters. We get no Monk in French waters. We now have bluefin tuna all over our waters. We've even carried out some scientific studies like where they've been uh, tagged above in Kitty Bakes. And this will maybe 250 miles out into the Atlantic. It's actually getting quite difficult to keep away from bluefin tuna. Yet we have no quota, and we have not asked for a quota for Ireland. A stock that was in danger, but no, it has recovered unbelievable, really, like, unbelievable. I don't think from a science point of view that they have any worries about the fishery. And why did all of that happen? John Nolan says that it was because ministers and civil servants didn't have the vision to realise what they had given away in conceding fishing rights to bigger EU countries. At the time, the Irish industry didn't have enough money for bigger boats, and the government ministers and civil servants gave away a huge national economic resource. We didn't have money to go out into the Atlantic. We had nothing. We were fishing in the bays. And we didn't have, at political level and at civil service level, the vision to see that if we gave money, they should have known that the Spaniards were coming off our coast for years, the French were coming off our coast, that we had a resource. And they had no vision right, to see that. When Spain came in after us, they negotiated that any new quota, 10% would have to be given to Spain. We never negotiated anything like that. John Nolan, Managing Director of Castletown Bear Fishermen's Co-op, explaining the differences of the fishing industry caused by the common fisheries policy. The Navy's Ellie Roisin is undergoing a €250,000 upgrading at Cork Dockyard at Rushbrook and is not due back into operation until May.
The naval vessel was built at Appledore Shipyards in the UK and entered service in 1999. Service life of a Navy ship is determined by its level of operational activity, 30 years according to a Defence Forces statement. Much of the auxiliary equipment aboard is coming to the end of its useful life or becoming obsolete and needs to be replaced. And finally, the Whitty Island Oil Terminal in Boundary Bay is to be sold. Zenith Energy, headquartered in Houston, Texas, which purchased the Whitty Island Oil Terminal in Bantry Bay in 2015, is expected to put it up for sale next month. It has 17 oil storage tanks, capacity of almost 9 million barrels, and holds a significant portion of Ireland's national oil reserves. 50 staff on Whitty Island have been told of the intended sale. Castle Town Bear is also in the news for a great achievement by its lifeboat crew, as RNLI media manager in Ireland Neil Stevenson reports. The recognition is for a dramatic rescue which took place in a local area known as the Pipers on a terrible night back in October 2018. The actions of the lifeboat crew saved the lives of six crew on board the fishing vessel named the Clodagh O. Coxon Dean Hegarty, who is 26 years of age, is to be awarded a bronze medal for gallantry by the institution. And lifeboat mechanic Martin O'Donoghue, lifeboat volunteers Seamus Harrington, John Paul Downey and David Fenton, along with Deputy Launching Authority Michael Martin Sullivan, will all receive a framed letter of thanks from the chairman of the RNLI. This is the first RNLI medal for gallantry to be awarded in Ireland in 10 years. The last one was a bronze medal for Portrush RNLI Station Coxon Anthony Chambers, and Anthony is due to retire next month. And that was for his rescue of two boys trapped in a cave near Castle Rock with a rising tide. The lifeboat crew were told of the decision at a crew meeting in the station by RNLI life-saving manager Sean Dillon, who personally delivered a letter from the RNLI chief executive Mark Dowie. The crew had been told to expect visitors, but had no idea what was about to happen. Own Medland, RNLI life-saving lead and Brian O'Driscoll, area life-saving manager, were also in attendance. Brian was also the previous coxswain of the Castletown Bear lifeboat and there was no prouder man that evening watching his successor get recognised. Castletown Bear or an ally lifeboat operations manager Paul Stevens, who was formerly the coxswain's school principal, was very proud of his former pupil. Paul remarked that when Dean was in class, he would draw pictures of fishing boats. So strong was his desire to be out on the water and not in school. Speaking to the crew that evening, he remarked that Castletown Bear is a strong fishing community and there has been too much loss at sea. This rescue was relatively fast in lifeboat terms, but carried out in extremely challenging conditions and relying on absolute precision and split-second decision-making. Also present during the evening was John Nolan, Managing Director of the Castletown Bear fishing co-op. John knows the area and the danger the fishing crew were in that night and he spoke of the importance of the lifeboat to its community. Now as a media manager for the RNLI I always want to share these incredible rescues that our crew do and to be honest sometimes they just don't make it easy. The return of service for the call out that night filled in by Dean 
spoke simply of a tow given to a fishing vessel to help them back to shore when their vessel lost power. No mention of the terrible conditions and the skill needed to save them. And well, you really wouldn't want it any other way. Indeed, that's the way lifeboat crews carry out their work. Neave Stevenson reporting from RNLI headquarters at Swords in County Dublin. Now to the angling world. Hello to all the anglers listening in. Miles Kelly from Inland Fisheries Ireland here again to give a quick roundup of the news from the world of fishing. We've had a full month of fishing already this year. I've not had a chance to wet a line yet, but I'll get there soon enough. In the meantime, I'll take inspiration from some of the reports that have been coming in from around the country. Salmon fishing has had a bit of a slow start. There were less anglers than normal out on the drows in Donegal to mark the opening of the season there. Conditions were pretty good on opening day, but no fresh fish was caught. Levels were up and down since then, and the river is still waiting for its first springer. But that's not to say the first salmon of the year hasn't been caught. At the other end of the country, down in Waterville, County Kerry, there was a lovely fish of £12 taken on the famous Butler's Pool. The fish was kept for the plate, so the €250 prize for the first salmon of the season caught and released still remains to be won. In other fishing news, sea anglers on the east coast have had a far more exciting start to their fishing year. Anglers fishing out of Wicklow with Kit Dunn on his charter boats have had some really incredible catches. At this time of year, one of the main targets there is Spurdog. Spurdog is a small shark that can grow about 1.5 metres in length. Most of the fish caught are under the metre, probably weighing less than 4 kilos. Spurdog gets its name from what can be a pretty impressive thorn that grows just in front of the fins on its back. Anyway, the fishing for these little sharks has been excellent, with as many as 40 caught in a single outing. All the fish are released, even the specimen-sized ones, and there's been plenty of these caught too. Good big spur dogs over 5 kilograms are longer than 105 centimetres are considered to be specimen-sized, a fish of a lifetime for most anglers. But on one day alone, the anglers fishing with Wicklow boat charters caught and released 15 specimens, 15 fish of a lifetime in a single afternoon. That's over a thousand years of angling in one day. Staying with sea angling, over on the west coast, fishing from a Connemara shore mark, Finnie Cargan caught another specimen, this time a pollock of over £10. That's a special achievement for an angler from the shore. Finnie has a great YouTube channel where you can watch all his adventures. Just tune in to lurefishing.ie to find it. To wrap things up, I'd like to invite you all to the Ireland Angling Show, which takes place in the National Show Centre in Swords, County Dublin, on the 15th and 16th of February. We will be there with a really fun angling simulator where you can experience the thrill of catching big game fish without getting your feet wet. We'll also have aquariums full of the local fish species and tables where you can come face to face with the insects and bugs that live in our rivers. The kids can also take part in other angling games over the two days and there will be loads to see and do. There's also going to be some super demos from casting experts as well as presentations by some of my colleagues and fishing personalities from around the world. I hope to see you there. Well, that's all from me this week. Safe fishing for all and don't forget CPR saves fish. Miles Kelly of Fisheries Ireland there and that story of somebody eating a salmon it cost him €250 to give up the prize. Wow! And that ends this Island Nation produced at CRY 104FM Yole on the East Cork coastline with technical supervision by Justin Marr and broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland in Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Canvara FM. Radio Cork of Oshkegan and Clare, Kilkenny City Radio, West Limerick 102 FM, in Mayo on Community Radio Castlebar and 
at Eris FM Belmollet, Cork City Radio, West Cork FM and Community Radio Bear Island. Podcasts, iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, Spotify and the Marine Times. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime Community on Community Radio. Program email address, thisislandnation at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872 Email, thisislandnation at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872 Until our next program from me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing. Thank you.